Welcome to The Solution. This is an AA speaker series meeting in which we discuss the 12 steps of the program of recovery. For 12 weeks, we have a speaker sharing their experience, strength, and hope of the AA 12 steps. And our speaker for this series is Mike Chase. Can we get a warm welcome for Mike Chase? Who's here for the first time tonight, this whole series? Good, I can sort of start over a little bit because we got some good stuff we're going to cover tonight. Uh, I'm a recovery alcoholic. My name is Mike Chase. Mike Chase. Um, my home group is in the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Group. We meet down in Fort Lauderdale Monday nights at, uh, well, we actually have pizza at 6.15 and the meeting starts at 7.15. It's, uh, Fort La- it's Yeah, downtown Fort Lauderdale. It's, uh, it's a bunch of big book thumpers. We, uh, we read the book slowly. We dissect it. We comprehend it. So we can become more effective sponsors because um, I needed an effective sponsor when I came back. Tonight we're going to be covering a lot of stuff because tonight is, I always used to, I always like to talk about the steps. It's a fluid process and to me it's also like a symphony. It's like a movie. It's, it's, it's like an opera, you know. Every scene, every act is important to carry on to the next act. And we've had a lot of stuff happen, you know. We're going to be touching on step 10. Don't know exactly where we're going to end up after that, but you know we've been doing this now. For, this is my 10th week here. It's actually my 11th week. The first week I got to tell my story, and then I got asked back. So uh, we're going to cover basically what got me up to step 10. You know, the, the step 10 is the basic gift of the program. You know, I came into this room a lying, cheating, stealing, fear-based dirtbag. You know, I didn't come into the room because, oh, I just want my life to get better and so I can be helpful and, you know, change lives and stuff like that. I wanted people to shut up. I wanted, and, and not the people who were forcing me to get sober, but the people who were complaining about, the people who were catching me in my lies, the people who were reacting to my manipulations, you know. I started out as a really nice little kid. Well, I was, you know, when my mom was holding the arms, I couldn't get in much trouble, you know. I was really, she looked down and she saw God looking up at her, you know unconditional love, a really nice guy. And for a few years there, I really was. You know, I hadn't developed the skill of stealing or manipulating yet. You know, other than crying to get what I want, that's where it started early. But uh, my life started to, its journey. First time I stole something from the grocery store, I remember that, you know. Mom ran in to get something, I'm sort of like hanging out in the toy department, she's at the checkout line, I'm just sort of contemplating should I steal this toy and how am I going to get away with it you know I'm battling my inner self not right don't steal it ah it's okay but you really want mom's not going to buy it for you so trying to figure out which pocket it's going to fit in or under my shirt you know and I remember sort of sneaking out of the grocery store mom's in the car and I sit in the back seat and I'm sort of wiggling I pull this thing out and I set it down next to him and she's like what is that busted right first First attempt to steal something, I get busted, right? (laughs) Tell him I'm busy. (laughs) Cool. Seriously, busted the first time, right? Most people would say, I'm not doing that any again. You know, I've learned my lesson. She made me walk into the store and walk up to the cashier. And I was supposed to say, I'm sorry, I stole this. But I just sort of walked in there, threw it on the cashier and squealed like a little kid and ran out the door and hopped in the car and mom took me home. I think I was probably grounded for a day or two. That was probably four or five years old. Little, I shouldn't be doing stuff like that. But I learned from that point on that if I want to get away with stuff, I, I need to get really better at it. And I don't know if that's normal or abnormal. That's just the way I was. 
Now we find out that's not why I'm alcoholic. That gives me a good reason to drink in the first place. You know, that, that shame and guilt, that uncomfortability that I had. And it, and it started to just grow the more, you know, going over to a friend's house and seeing a toy. If it fit in my pocket, it was mine, you know. If, if I was caught, I could figure out a way to get out of it. But my whole life was based on I want it, <coughs> I'm going to get it, and how am I going to do it? <coughs> So when I started social drinking at age six, which some people think is sort of early, I really needed it. I needed that drinks when I'm sitting around. My mom had to have dinner parties, and they go back into the, into the dining room, and the living room's got all these little highballs and scotch and waters and appetizers, you know? So I'm sitting down and pretending I'm having these little cocktail parties by myself, and I'm loving it. You know, I, I had always had heroes of uh, Dean Martin, the Rat Pack, these people that amplified high society and fancy drinking and my mom is a very fancy lady and you know the family was very in, into entertaining and stuff so I, I emulated that and at six and seven I really liked it you know, I wasn't getting any trouble I had yet to have any really major consequences other than the occasionally getting caught stealing stuff or in my case get caught lying a lot um, wasn't affecting my grades because I really didn't give a hoot about school that much. I was just this normal little kid that was developing a lot of behaviors that wasn't conducive to being happy, joyful, and free. It was causing me to have a lot of fear, a lot of uh, self-loathing, shame, guilt, you know, those things that really make us want to go get drunk. You know, if you did the things I did, you'd probably want to get drunk too. So somewhere along the line between six and eight, age 10, Nine, my phenomenon of craving started to kick in because I was an alcoholic very early on. You know, my body's reaction I found in step one, that chemical reaction that kicks in. And when I put a certain amount of alcohol into my body, my <coughs> brain just says, more of this stuff. <coughs> my brain says, no, I, I really shouldn't have any more. But there's a part of my brain that says, they're full of boo-boo. Drink some more. And that phenomenon was kicking in. So junior high, well, actually grade school, I had a few good drinking years in grade school. Junior high kicked in, and uh, I was a weekend warrior, Thursday, Wednesdays, you know, got into uh, a lot of trouble. When I would get drunk, I'd do things, I, inappropriate things, and I would get caught. You'd drink, too, if you did the things I did. So this whole cycle of drinking more and inappropriate behavior while I'm drunk. You know, it's one thing that I'm a conniving little thief sober, but then we, I get drunk and I do things that's like, that's like morally unacceptable. It's like, whoa, you know, and I... The more I do, the more I drink. This snowballing effect, you know? I didn't really consider alcohol was my problem until to about 1984. I was 24 years old. Um, my mom and dad had gone to Europe. They left me the house. I had I dropped out of college. I wasn't able to hold a job. I was a, a dry goods salesperson. I was my best customer. I sucked at distribution. I was an incredible consumer. Um, so why I owe five or six dealers you know we get that merry-go-round of borrow from you or get fronted that's what we call it right front from you to pay you to front from you to pay you to front from you and I'm just my life is it's utter chaos you know I can't hold jobs because I gotta go deliver stuff I, but who wants a job anyways um, my mom had bought me a house really nice of her to keep tabs on me because I'm something's going on they're not sure what it is they had sent me to therapy a few years ago because they caught me lying all the time and, when I, and I said, oh, cool, I tell the therapist why I'm lying. He's like, whoa, I would lie too. So my parents ended up going to therapy. I got out of therapy. Um, my parents go to Europe, and uh, in the process of a three-month vacation, I steal a few thousand dollars. 
Nothing I'm going to be able to just like, oops, sorry, Mom. This was like the shit hit the fan. And they're, and they're coming back any month, any day now, you know. And I'm just I'm trying to decide, well, should I do that suicide thing? Because I tried suicide a lot. Never actually was able to complete it because I would have a drink and a joint and a drink. Phenomenon of craving would kick in. And that whole concept of suicide got really stupid because I got a lot of drinks. I got some more drinking to do. So the booze is working for me. All the shame, guilt, remorse that I was getting from being a cheat, a thief, you know was getting sort of medicated with the alcohol. But there's a certain point in time where that stopped medicating. You know, where my life just sucked. At first I thought being a all-around town big coke dealer, you know, really sucked at it, um, was, was I had arrived. You know, Bill's story talks about he had arrived. Um, just like Bill's, that turned around to be the, the boomerang that took my life away from me, you know. I was a slave to the alcohol because I couldn't control when or how much I was going to do. And then mix in cocaine. Now, I used to be able to drink a lot and pass out. Then I discovered cocaine, which I could drink a lot and 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 drink a lot, you know? And it's just like, I don't even, it wasn't even called pass out. It was just like, boom, coma for three days. And I'd wake up, or excuse me, I'd come to. It's like, Oh, my God, I did that stuff again, you know? More shame, more guilt, remorse, you know? I'm, I wish I was dead. Can't even kill myself, you know? And I, I've got more people I owe money to, and mom's coming home, and it's up to, like, a lot of thousands of dollars. And I'm like, well, I can't kill myself, but I'm going to go steal some more money and move to California and never come home. <laughs> yeah, like, that was a crock, right? I had friends in junior high and high school that got a little over the... Over the uh, Oh, how do you call it? Out of control. And I got sent to these things. We call them treatment back in those days. And uh, they would go. These guys were really fun, a little out of control, really fun. And then they come back a month later. Nobody wanted anything to do with them because they were just, like, so dull. You know, they used to be fun to hang around with, but they just were just, like, going to Bible study and you know, being in meetings. It's like we did, I didn't really understand the whole concept of that. I just didn't really want anything to do with that until... Two days before my parents are coming home, and, and the stuff's really, the dude is going to hit the fan, and I get this bright idea. I'll just tell them I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict, because I've called Cocaine Anonymous a couple times, tried to get help from them, and they always put her on hold, and I get just bored and do a couple lines and have a couple drinks. Phenomenon kicks in, it's like, screw them, I'm having, you know, I'll get through this. So they're coming home. I know, I'm going to rehab, and I'll get out of this. So mom and dad come home, they show up around 11 o'clock. Not very happy because I was apparently supposed to pick them up at 9 o'clock at the airport. Um, boom, boom, really great way to start the return vacation. And I come downstairs, and the house looks pretty good, but it's got that reek of like three months of smoking pot and beer, and you know, the house really good. And uh, they sort of look at me, and the first, I, before they said anything, you know how good we are with that offense. Mom, Dad, I'm an alcoholic and a droid. Like, I really need help. And I stole blah, 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 thousands of dollars. And they're like, good, we're going to get you help. Because they had seen that little kid, remember the little adorable little thing I was, you know, turn into this sick, lost. That wasn't the way I was supposed to grow up. I was supposed to be magnificent, and God had great plans for me, you know. But I, I, I choose to be selfish and self-centered, and alcohol got involved, and then I completely lost any ability to determine where my life was going to go, because it was going to go down the tubes no matter what, you know. So mom's on talking to me, and also on the phone ringing some random lady from Hazleton's like, oh, my God, yeah, send him in. We'll interview him. And I'm 24 years old, and they send me to adolescent care unit. 
with a bunch of 16 and 17 year olds. 24, 16 and 17 year olds. I'm like, I'm on top of the world here, you know. And I go in there and they give me some good food. Um, I go to my first AA meeting and you know how we are, we look at the steps. Oh yeah, I'm done, cool, I'm good with this. I'm gonna be fine, you know. And uh, I hear about prayer and God. Now, I talked earlier about attempted suicides, and besides the attempted suicides, you know, there's those moments, it's just like foxhole prayers, and I knew something was wrong, and I knew that my disconnection from God had happened somewhere along the way, and I, and I knew in my innermost self that I needed to get back to God somehow. And I remember back in the days before, before I even thought of rehab and stuff like that, praying to God, you know, God, I need some help here. I'm, 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 I'm drowning. What, what do I need to do? And in this crazy mind's eye, I could see God's light behind this old wooden rickety door, you know, and I'm like, come on, let me in. I'm pushing on the door. And I know I'm just such a piece of <coughs> shit that uh, he wants nothing to do with me. You know, everything I've done, God doesn't even want anything to do with me. So you drink more, so I would drink more. So I'm in Hazleton. Second night, they give me some pamphlets and a bunch of stuff I didn't understand, you know, and therapy and nutritional, just some junk. And, uh, which was really good if I wasn't an alcoholic. But um, I'm sitting there, and I remember something at the meeting, because they brought a meeting, and they talked about, you need to ask God for help. And it's like, wow, you know. I had hit an emotional wall. I was as low as I could get. I had given up everything. I knew that my life was just, I didn't know what to do. So I, I got up in my bed on my knees, and I, and I prayed to God, and I said, God, you know, Help me. I don't know what to do. And all of a sudden, there's that stupid door again in my eyes. And it's just like, oh, not that door again. And I'm pushing on the door. Come on, God, let me in, you know. And I hear this, pull on the door. I said, what? Pull on the door. And I pulled on the door and I had this white light experience. You know, just like God rushed over me. Everything that used to be fear-based became trusted. Everything that used to be hate used to become love. I, I woke up that morning. I was like, Captain Recovery, Mr. Oh, my God, he's so sweet and wonderful. And annoying and people were just like over me because I was just so nice you know and so helpful the therapists were even concerned about this radical change they wanted to make me stay a little bit longer um, and then they tried to get me into some pamphlets and some more therapy and you know I was just sort of like this is cool um, I got out of rehab got into a halfway house and I'm living in this halfway house and I'm still Mr. Captain Recovery, you know, Mr. Super AA. You know, in all, in all the therapy groups, I'm like super counselor trying to get, and they finally said, you know, you need to get out of here. You're just like driving everybody else crazy. So they, they sent me off and I ended up moving down to Fort Lauderdale. So I had a white light experience. I used to be a lying, cheating, stealing, low-life, self-centered, inconsiderate, self-serving, backstabbing, you don't even want to hang out with me kind of guy. And one night, boom, happy, joyous, and free kind, considerate, a life based on service to others, you know? And I didn't really know how I got there. I just knew something had shifted. I didn't pay any attention to that quasi stuff they were giving me at Hazleton because I didn't need to. I was already there. And people in AA used to say, well, you don't like Chase, you should probably continue going through the steps. And I'm going like, hello, certificate from Hazleton. And I had the white light experience. I'm cool, which I was for about a year, year and a half. Everything's going good, you know? A little bit of, what do you call it when somebody has something that you want? Envy. Envy, lust, all that stuff, you know? Ooh, they got a better car than me. I had this blue pickup truck I drew back from Minneapolis, you know? And they had, they had better bikes and stuff like that. And um, I'm, I'm going to meetings, but I'm not really participating in them because I'm the Hazleton white light guy and I'm not really 
sure what even AA was because I had the white light experience. I didn't need to work at this thing. God just gave it to me. So I'm starting to cheat, lie, manipulate, and that gift of desperation that God had given me of a white light experience started to dim. I started looking at outside things again to make me who I am. Because I know for a while there, for about that first year and a half, God was just shining through me like a freaking fog light. It was annoying. It was so bright, you know. But myself, my mind took back over. And after about, well, let's see, I was a year and a half, things were golden. Thirteen and a half years later, I've got a plan to go kill myself. You know, get a bottle of Cristal, take a handful of seconds and die. You know, just like, it's easy to get God. How do we hang on to God? See, that's the problem. You know, we can all go through the steps. Boom. We can all go through rehab. Boom. You know, but what are we going to do to keep that connection that we have? You know, I had the connection when I was born. And over a period of time, it got lost. Self took over. You know, my greeds, my character defects, all those things took over. So within a span of 15 years, here I am, wanting to die again. Now, the 15 years I had in my sobriety, I call it, because I never sponsored I sort of occasionally tried to do some step work, but I was like, you know, my heart wasn't in it, you know. I was going to a lot of meetings, but I was going on a lot of sprees, you know, going to clubs, traveling, buying credit cards, building things, you know, all these sprees. And I finally run out of sprees, and I'm going to kill myself, you know. So I'm going to kill myself, and I meet somebody, we go out for a cup of coffee and the beer I end up having a beer guess where I end up circling the drain again four years later my roommates calling my parents reporting that I'm drinking and drugging too much again see they thought I was sober for that whole time then my six year relapse and uh, they decided to have this uh, intervention thing which sort of really totally sucks if you don't want to get sober because I thought it was working you know my alcoholism, the delusion that I have that we, that we start dealing with in the step process. I'm on cloud nine. I'm doing pretty good. I saw nothing wrong with going four or five days without sleep. Because I could show up to work, do a couple hours of work, get my quota, and go back out and continue partying, you know? 2005, I'm in the psych ward. Attempted suicide. And I'm actually seeing stuff. You know, I had... The stuff they put in cocaine these days isn't cocaine. It's a bunch of other crazy stuff. So a bunch of uh, six months of tequila, six months of cocaine with maybe three days of sleep. Exaggeration. Very lack of sleep. Total psychotic breakdown, you know. Come back to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and I sit down. And I'm given some phone numbers. Some very loving people giving me some great suggestions. Here's your white chip. You never have to drink even if you want to, you know. The things that I'm hearing in rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous today that work great if you're not alcoholic. But see, I'm an alcoholic. So my mind, if I say I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drink. Next thing you know, I'm drinking. And I'm thinking, what's wrong with you? Why am I drinking? You know? And everybody in the rooms are going like, you know, you should have called me. And you should have you know, used your more willpower. And I'm just, I'm crumbling. And, and I, I don't know what to do. Everything that I'm hearing in meetings is just like, get a service commitment. I was in general service. I kept relapsing. I was uh, the chair guy setting up the chairs. I'm doing all this. I'm doing everything that these people are telling me to do that doesn't treat my alcoholism or drug addiction. just keeps me busy. And every time I can crack open a little bit of time to get away from you people, I'm drinking and snorting and having a good time, hoping I don't get busted. But I go to my meeting, and my grand sponsor comes up to me, goes up to my face, and goes, Honesty's a bitch, ain't it, Mike Chase? And it's like, damn, he smells it again. i got to pick up another white chip. How embarrassing. It's like, I don't want to do that, you know? 
But I, for some reason, I kept doing it. God kept taking me back to the rooms. I'm looking for and listening for a solution. I'm trying to figure out what it is. But I'm hearing a bunch of different ideas of what the program is. I'm not really hearing big book recovery. I'm hearing a bunch of conversational discussion meetings. Talk about your problems. You know, if he doesn't share, he's going to drink. Well, he's going to drink anyways. After he shares, if he's going to drink, it's not going to stop him, you know? <laughs> Finally, my last run, perfect. It was so set up perfect. I had two, two handles of tequila. Those are big things of tequila. Had four eight balls, and this thing was going to last like four or five days, you know? The hurricane had just blown through, so the meetings were canceled, and the second night into my run, somebody calls, and I accidentally pick up a phone, and I'm busted. You know, he's like, oh, my God, you're drinking. I said, no, I'm not. It's the psych meds again. He's like, no, you're drinking. And my, my sponsor calls, my grand sponsor calls. I'm thinking AA SWAT Central is going to be swarming my house any minute, you know. Oh, we'll take that. We'll take that. And bad you, bad, bad you. We're putting you back in. You know, I'm going to morning meetings, lunch meetings, afternoon meetings. Evening meetings, late night meetings, go to sleep, go to work, meeting, meeting, meetings, and hurricanes come through, and it was just, it was, I was, I was, I was going to be one of those people that never got sober. I was a chronic relapser, you know? I know today that I wasn't a chronic relapser, I was chronically untreated. You know, I'm coming to the rooms for alcoholics, I'm coming to the rooms of alcoholics now to be treated for alcoholism, right? Dr. Silkworth, Carl Jung talked about it. Many of the therapeutic stuff we do doesn't work with a certain kind of alcoholic. Well, nowadays we know that's a real alcoholic. The stuff, the therapy and nutrition stuff works with problem heavy drinkers, but it wasn't working on me. Yeah, I got something out of it. I, I was given an opportunity to grow and be better, but I would still, oh God, life is great. I'm doing wonderful. Next thing I'm drinking and doing sort of games. Like, what's up with me? I didn't get it. <clears throat> So I go to my meeting, I have this hissy fit, I'm dropping F-bombs, you tell me not to drink between meetings. I do. You tell me I don't have to drink if I want to. I do. You know, you save a service keeps you sober. No, it doesn't. You know, and if I'm not doing the step work, and this little Weasley guy in the back <coughs> says, Mike Chase, I'll bring you through the book. And I'm like, no. <laughs> not that. Ah. I had a book, not this one, but I got a little baby one, 1984, and it has all this great writing in it. It was like, Mike Chase, you're such an inspiration. Mike Chase, you're out of control. Mike Chase, thank you for sharing. All this wonderful stuff, but I never read, well, I read it, but I never comprehended it. I never studied it, you know. I, I had a sponsor one time, go read the doctor's opinion, and we'll talk about it. I, didn't, I, I read about the page, got distracted, and I saw him at the meeting the next day, and he asked me, did you read it? I said, yes, I did, because what do untreated alcoholics do best? Lie, right? You know, and he's thinking, oh, we're working so good with him. And I'm drinking, I'm not even telling you. Know, I wouldn't pick up a white chip if he was in the room. You know what? I'm thinking I wasn't good. So this little guy offers to bring me through the book, and I'm like, shit, not that thing. But I had no choice because I learned my last drunk when God ripped alcohol and drugs out of my hands. My first step was, Mike Chase, you're going to get drunk, you're going to do cocaine, and there's nothing you can do about it. Just get used to it. You're going to die this way. Once again, I hit an emotional wall, right? I knew my life was over, and this little weaselly guy with the book was like, okay, let's do the book. I had no other choice, you know? A, a, well, excuse me, not um, therapeutic stuff, middle-of-the-road contemporary alcoholic sounds wasn't working for me. 
but I wanted my life back because I knew that it wasn't working. So he started me on page zero. We started reading the book. I found out what it was to be an alcoholic. Fifteen years of my sobriety, I still had this little thing. Well, you know, I know I had a real big problem with cocaine, but I'm not too sure about that alcohol thing. You know, el- cocaine was my problem, but, you know, alcohol. And, and by reading the book, I wasn't in halfway through the doctor's opinion, and I'm jumping down and excited saying, I'm an alcoholic. I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic. You know, it was like I was convinced to, to my innermost self that I was a real alcoholic and a coke dealer, coke addict, which was easy, but... Um, the alcoholism sort of had me scared, you know? And he started bringing me through the process of the book, you know, finding out through the doctor's opinion what alcoholism is, and then Bill's story, finding out what the progression of alcoholism looks like and how the solution was brought to Bill W. Just like me, you know, Bill was at that jumping off point. He knew that he was going to drink and there wasn't anything, he, and nothing he could do about it. And little Ebby Thatcher shows up, and he's offering him, you know, the, ther- the Oxford Christianity evangelical spiritual experience. And he's like, nah, his life's falling apart, right? And, and Bill's like, I'm not sure about this, you know. Is it that bad i got to do this? You know, and he's battling back and forth. Just like me with my little Weasley guy with the book. It's like, God, not the book. Because I know what book people are like, I thought. So he's bringing me through the book. I find out what it is, and then I find out what this, what this, what the, what the uh, solution is. You know, all the great therapy that I'm given is helpful, but I need this vital spiritual experience. I need a psychic change. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which, upon careful reading shows, I like that, careful reading, pay attention to that, right? Shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself in many different forms. And we read later on, Dr. Silkworth and Dr. Wong are talking about, you need a vital spiritual experience, not some just little run-of-the-mill, put $10 in the basket at church type, you know, sing some great songs and, you know, do some great prayers. We need something that's just going to smack us to the side of the head and get us restarted. I always like to tell my guys to sort of like control, alternate, delete to my brain. I had to get like completely rebooted. And the program that's found in the book, The Twelve Steps, are designed to do just that. Sitting in meetings is good. It keeps you busy and helps you have fellowship and stuff like that. But it's not going to give that desired effect that working the steps. By the way, the steps are uncomfortable. They take work. They, they're difficult. They, sometimes they're, they're just amazing release. And at other moments, they're like you feel like you've been kicked in the gut. But that's necessary to have that quote-unquote vital spiritual experience. So it's bringing me through the step. You know, the third step, I'm looking at my life. I'm a joke. You know, I'm trying to run my life on selfish, self-centeredness, and it's a complete catastrophe. And he gives me this opportunity. He's like, you know, you're not doing a very good job at this. Your will, which is my thinking, sucks. And my life, which is my actions, where's it got you? Absolutely nowhere. So he's telling me about this whole third-step prayer thing I got. I get to do. Because my life on my own terms is not working. So why not just give this God thing a try? See, I've been sitting with my sponsor now. 16 hours, one-on-one, talking to get to know each other, you know? And I know he's not full of it. I know he's not sent by my parents. I know he's not some therapist in rehab. This is a guy who was where I was who's had something happen in his life. And he's sharing honestly about this God changing his lifestyle. I'm signed on. You know, I'm, I'm going to go with this. So we do this third-step prayer. God bumps, chills, you know? And then he throws a fourth step at me. He's like, dude, God, are we going a little fast? And he says, no. 
It says right here, we next latch on to a course of vigorous action. Vigorous action is steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. That's the stuff for the transformation. You know, I had that white light experience. Woo, magic, you know? Don't, what happened? That's what this stuff is trying to you know, do the same in a general way. Try and cause me to have a gigantic shift in my psychic so I have a spiritual experience. So I like this sign. So I finally, he finally realized that he's undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life. See, my reaction to life was my problem. I had to get drunk. I had to steal. And my life was just... So we go through the steps. Step five, sat down with this guy, bore my soul. He saw the dirt bag that I really was. Not this beautiful mass that I think people think I am, you know, and they're seeing the cracks around. And this guy saw who I really was. And then he pointed out what my real character defects were. I always thought it was your problem, your problem. My, you know, it's like if you all treated me better, I'd be better. He said, no, you are a lying, well, I, I was actually a manipulative, fearful, self-centered, which I think most of us probably are at heart, you know? Um, but we're alcoholic, and we drink, and phenomenal craving kicks in, and we can't. So we had to deal with that. Six and seven, you know. When I dropped to my knees that last time before I had my hissy fit at the dry dock, I asked God to really help me. And all of a sudden, I got up in the middle of this meeting, right? That's not me needing help. You know, I had 15 years. Everybody thought I was, like, really cool, even though I relapsed and stuff like that. I had this emotional point that I stood up in a meeting and asked for help, and God put this little Weasley guy with the big book in my life, right? Steps four, five. I hit another emotional wall. I see the person who I really was. Not the person we imagined or the person I imagined I was. This really nice guy just had this misunderstood, you know? I was this utter dirtbag that was just so disconnected from God. So when I ended up doing six and seven, I, which we do the same evening right afterwards because there's no pause, there's no chapter, it doesn't say... You know, it, says, it does say go home, but in our family, we just stay where we are. Because by the time we get home, everything's changed a little bit, so we do it at home. And, and I gave myself, once again, to God, good and bad, every part of me, you know. I felt different. I felt connected for the first time in my life. I'm once again connected to God. All the things that I had built up that was blocking me from God, not God blocking me. Stuff that I used to block from God was gone. And I'm feeling electric, you know, which is really good time for sponsors to be like really grab and hold on to us because we're going to want to run around and do a bunch of amends and stuff like that inappropriately at the wrong time because we're so connected to God and it's great, you know, and, and, and we got to be sort of watched a little bit. So that puts me into steps eight and nine. Eight and nine sucks. First of all, it's uncomfortable and it's expensive, right? Got to go give people money. I have to go talk to people that I've screwed over. I got to talk to people that screwed me over. And I'm developing this thing which I never really had. It's called character. You know, you go into a difficult situation and I'm going there with God, right? And I'm coming through the other side. Resolved situation. Shoulders a little bit higher, you know, and a little bit closer to God. Eight and nine goes right away. I, I start and that's a way of my life. It's not like, well, now that I've done eight and nine, I'm going to stop. Because I have to finish all my nine steps of men's before I go on to 10, 11, and 12. No. Just like step six and seven, there's not wait a month, wait a week, wait a day. It's like right next. So as soon as I make my, you know, my sponsor we met, and with my guys we meet on, let's say, Sunday, because that's a great day for uh, eight and nine. Two days later, we meet for 10 and 11. Well, I, I haven't really started all my amends. Have you started to, you know, you've been making some amends along the way. Well, Yeah. Okay. Well, see, here's the deal. 
everything that I did from age toddler to age six was the stuff that was blocking me from God. And I have to make sure I don't build that stuff back up. See, I am free with God and I'm free with mankind after steps five, six, seven, eight, nine. I'm clear. I'm clean, you know. I'm walking around. I can go anywhere. I'm, I'm feeling connected to God. So I got to make sure I don't start acting inappropriate again and start blocking me off from God. Because God's there just screaming, I'm here and I'm capable of putting up the little resentments, little, I'm pissed at you, you know, just, this thing's a distraction, a little, little lust, right? Need a better job. Ooh, you know, got out of rehab. Need to get a girlfriend and a car, you know? All those things that start getting us blocked from God. So we got this cool step. It's called step 10. This is the step. It's four. Actually, it's three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and one ball. You know, everything that took me a couple weeks to do, I got to do on a daily basis. You know, I wake up in the morning. I'm going to cheat a little bit. 11 step tells me upon awaking, I need to ask God to remove me from selfish, self-centered, self-pityness. I need to be divorced. Divorced. That implies what? That that's me. I'm married to that. I, every morning I wake up, I'm going to be that selfish, self-centered, self-pitying little dude, right? So I beg God to take that away from me. And as I go through my day, I got to be watchful of being a lying, cheating, stealing, low-life. He's got fancier words in the book. Lying, cheating, stealing, low-life, self-centered, inconsiderate, self-pitying guy. Because that's going to build up. Now, there's some confusion between the book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the other book that Bill wrote later on about what the 10th step actually is. The book of Alcoholics Anonymous says, as we go through the day, you know, I don't know about you, if, if I become resentful to you early in the morning, I'm not going to wait for my bedtime inventory to deal with it. I need to deal with it right now because every time I get resentful or put something between me and God, guess what? I get resentful and put something between me and God. And the more builds up, the more builds up. You know, if I don't deal with this as soon as possible, by 8 o'clock, I'm a basket case, you know? I'm going to be kicking the dog. I don't have a dog. Um, <laughs> kicking the neighbor. Um, I'm going to become disconnected from God. See, the whole purpose of the steps up to this point is to get a relationship <coughs> with God. The whole purpose of step 10 is to keep that relationship so we can build upon it. See, I've done a lot of work up to this point. There's some really great stuff here in the book about that. You know, I've, it's given specific directions on how to go through my day. When these character defects crop up, what am I supposed to do with them? You know, first thing we do in our family, inventory is done on paper, isn't it, right? Who works at Kmart and tried to, like, inventory Kmart without writing it down, right? Well, we learned how to do inventory in the fourth step which is actually putting pen to paper. So in our family, we actually do 10-step inventory through the day. little piece of paper, you know, on the back of the thing. I'm mad at Fred because he cut me off coming into the office parking lot. You know? Ooh, that can build by the end of the day, can't it? Just write a little note, and then we know how to do inventory. We just did the inventory on resentments. Who had less than two, paper, two pages of that? You know, We're talking five, six, seven pages sometimes for resentments, right? <coughs> then we got the, the fear inventory. There's a bunch of pages. And we got the sex inventory, which could be lots of pages or one page. It depends on who, what kind of person you are. And then we have the, the harms inventory, right? Which I always have extra har harms inventory. So I know how to do an inventory. I've just done 30 pages of inventory just a week or so ago. So I know how to do inventory, right? Top of my head. What is it? The who, the what, the why, what was my part? process it. Boom, it's down on paper. Call my sponsor. We got triangles. My sponsor and two other people. These are people that like to take my inventory. I look at it. 
you know, they just love to look for little kinks in my armor and say, well, you're being selfish, you're being inconsiderate, you're being a thief in this area. And they just love to point this stuff out because that's the kind of friends I need. Because I used to surround myself, oh, come on, it's not that bad. Come on, he was a jerk. He pulled in. He should have, like, let you go first and stuff like that. I need people in my life that will be honestly telling me that I'm starting to act bad again. You know, I don't need a bunch of people around me are going to co-sign my stuff. Because I had that for a lot of years, and I ended up wanting to die, you know? So I got this 10-step inventory. I take it throughout the day. Now, we talk about the promises of the 9-step promises, you know, at all the meetings. They love to read that one, you know? I didn't come into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous to become, you know, the employee of the month. I was employee of the year once at a Marriott, which is sort of cool. Um, lasted for about a week, and then it, the, the greatness of it followed. Um, the things that I got from the, from the nine-step promises were direct result of action, direct result of getting uncomfortable, pains taking, you know, and they're definitely great things to have. It, it's part of growing life. But I think the 10-step promises are, are, are the, for me, the double ringer, you know, the, 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 the golden goose. Because I, I, before the steps, my life sucked. I was fear-based. What are they thinking about? What are they talking about, you know? And, and, and I'm living in the past. I can't imagine what the future is going to be like. And I couldn't spend more than five seconds in the future or in the present because I, I had too much stuff to worry about, you know? My completely disconnected from God. I wish I was dead. My life sucked. You know, it's like, why bother? So I've gotten through the steps. I'm on fire. Somewhere along the way up to this point, you know, this, this little nagging alcohol problem we had, you know, I had, just disappeared. I can't say, well, it happened right here or what time or what day. Just somewhere along this whole process, my alcoholic mind left. My mental obsession left. Somewhere along the line... My spiritual malady was healed. Spiritual malady, disconnect from God. See, God was out there the whole time, right? Jumping in, here I am, I love you, come and get me, you know? And I got all this stuff blocking me from him. Somewhere through there, I think I started feeling it around the thirds. Now, actually, I, I started feeling it when we sat down and read the forwards. Because I saw hope. I saw purpose. I saw that my life was going to actually be something rather than like, just don't drink and go to meetings. And don't get caught stealing, manipulating, or hurting people. See, that's, that's what I thought recovery was back in the 80s and 90s with my sobriety. You know, just don't drink, you've been successful. Just don't pick up, you've been successful. That's a crock. There's so much more. Yeah, we don't get high, we don't get, that's, that's duh. But you know, God's taken me from a place where I was utterly going to die and given me a place to do his work, you know. He's put me in a position where I can go out and help other people. You know, this is a direct result of action. Some people like to say, sobriety is a miracle. Well, the program might be a miracle because we had all these people that sort of clickety-click that happen. But the sobriety where I'm at is not a miracle. It's a direct result of a lot of work to get me reconnected to God. And it's not really that hard to get reconnected to God because God's God. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be a miracle if you just sat here and got sober. My white light experience, that was sort of a miracle. That was a miracle, you know? But when you're working for this stuff and doing this stuff, it's just a direct result of hard work. So if you're waiting around for a white light experience, don't. You know, get to work. So I'm going to read you my favorite promises. At once we've ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. Get a load of this. For by now, sanity will have returned. 
Sanity will have returned. I was this insane. You know, besides the stupid stuff I did drunk. You know, that's just get my Aunt Tilly on the crap I was on. She'd be doing crazy stuff too. My insanity was the way that I looked at life. You know, it's going to be different this time. I can get away with this. It was just, but somewhere in this process, I became sane, which meant I, I was actually able to look at life without a delusion, without lying, without, you know, just making crap up. I, I'm, I'm connected to God, which is the gift of these, these steps. We seldom are interested in liquor. You know, I've been sober a little plus over eight, seven years, you know? I go down the aisle at Publix every once in a while to get some chips. The next thing I'm in the wine aisle. It's like, I may as well be in the you know, ethnic food aisle. It, it doesn't mean anything to me. It's like, but there's been times where I'm driving home and all of a sudden out of the blue, you know, the song comes on, Maroon, the Rooster song or something like that. And it's like, whoa, got an eight ball and a handle of tequila. No. That's the stupidest thing I could ever think of doing, you know? Are you serious? I may as well go home and have lemon-flavored bleach and Coke, you know? It's like, wouldn't taste very good. That's the way I look at it, you know? But we're bombarded with it, right? If we had to hide from our triggers, we're never leaving the house, you know? These people that say, oh, heroin's so much harder to quit than alcohol. When was the last time you went to Applebee's and saw people setting up their rigs at the table? <laughs> right? Everywhere we go. Wow! So, we seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil to it from a hot flame. You know that little, ugh. You know, tequila in the morning, ugh. You know? Before it used to be, yeah. You know? I know the difference. We react sanely and normally. We find that this happens automatically. Here's the kicker. We see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. No more AA jail. <laughs> Running to meetings. Got to go to meetings. Got to just somewhere along this process, I've had this shift, you know, and and it's something that I work for, you know, and it, it's just, what am I going to do with it, you know? Am I going to throw it away, you know, or am I going to actually go do something with this? We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has come has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That's the miracle of it. We are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality. I like this, safe and protected. We've not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We're neither cocky nor are we afraid. This is our experience. Pay attention. That is how we react so long as we stay in fit spiritual condition. See, the original AAs, the Oxford groups, you know, true. Total fundamentalist, tambourine shaking, give your life to Jesus, scaring half of us away type stuff, you know. But the stuff that they brought and gave to Alcoholics Anonymous was sort of a non-denominational, bring your own conception of God, which is why we're so successful, Right. But the one thing that they lived by was the four absolutes. You know, some people say, well, I live the steps every day. It's like, well, the steps are done to get you connected to God. The four absolutes were the guidepost of the absolutes, and it's from a lot of different religious backgrounds. Absolute honesty. Good luck getting resentful, being absolute honest, you know? Purity. Selfish, unselfishness, and love, you know? When I first got sober, that, that bullseye to try and be living by the four apps. It was the size of a barn, you know? 
because I had to grow in progression. You know, the, the, the obsession and the malady and the, the physical craving was gone, but I was still struggling with life because I needed to grow some more. So this, this barn of shooting to be a good person, I've been around a while now. You know, it's about this big now. My sponsor's been around 25 years, and he's got, like, this little needle thing. You know, he can just, you know, it used to be able, when I first came in, I had this, like, I could get away with this. You know, I'm just, I'm not drinking. <laughs> Leave me alone. Today, it's right and wrong, you know. And as long as I stay acting right and staying spiritually fit, I'm not going to get disconnected from God. I'm not going to want to go out and get drunk. I'm not going to get Mr. Get High. I'm not going to lie, cheat, steal, manipulate, you know. I'm going to have a life of purpose. I'm going to have a life that is so amazing. Talk to people that are in my circle of family, you know. Talk to people who are in recovery, who are walking with God. This whole room is filled with them, you know. This life is amazing. If you're here just to quit drinking, you're missing it. That's just like, that's the tip of the iceberg, you know. You have an opportunity to have a life beyond your wildest dreams. I like to say that God gave everyone a life to be the most magnificent and fabulous person they could possibly be, you know. And somewhere along the line, we screwed it up big time. We ended up where we were. God is so cool with second chances. See, God wants each of us to be magnificent. God wants each of us to be fabulous. They want each of us to be these amazing, special people, you know? Embrace this program. Embrace this relationship with God and do something with it. Because life is amazing. And we only get one time around. I've had actually two times around because of the relapse of puts up and stuff like that. But, you know, don't waste this life. Make the best of it. You know, um, wow! Look at all you guys. This is amazing. I hope you guys get off your ass and get some work, because there's a lot of people out there who could use somebody who's recovered. That's not me. That's going to think they're going to be relating to you. That you can bring them through the book, get them connected to God, because this is this is sick. You know, we look around and we got more people come to meetings, and this is becoming more and more deadly. We've got the, the, the heroin epidemic. We've got the alcohol. We've got all this stuff, you know? And the ones we need to get off our butts and do something about it. Because we're the only ones who can do anything. Thanks. Go with God. Ain't that the truth?